right, if you have a packet, there's packets on the, on the stands that are at both entrances. You can grab one if you didn't get one when you came in. That's what we'll be going over uh, tonight. And so we're, uh, we're quickly getting into the prophets as we get closer and closer to the exile of the Jews in Israel in the northern kingdom. As we get closer and closer to that, uh, there's more and more prophets that are going to come onto the scene. So our job, really, on Wednesday night, as we go through the Old Testament, is to really put all the pieces in place. And that, that means we need to put all the chronology in place, put all the, the timeline in place, put the locations on the map in place, help us to understand when we get to the minor prophets, I think one of the hardest things when you read the Old Testament is reading the minor prophets. You open up the book of Amos or Jonah or a number of other ones. Jonah's probably one of the more popular ones simply just because it's easy to understand, if not difficult to, to read, but it's, it's easy to understand. Um, the rest of the prophets, though, there's all kinds of cryptic language in there, and there's all kinds of things like that that are really difficult. But what I've found is when you take those prophets and you put them in their historical setting, a lot of things start to make sense. A lot of things start to fall in line. And what we're going to see as we get closer and closer to the exile of the northern kingdom, and then a hundred and some years later, the exile of the south, southern kingdom, what we're going to see is God increases the amount of prophets that are being sent to the north and south and that are warning them of times to come. That are, there's going to be some difficult times ahead for them. And so, that's our job, is basically to put all those things in place. And so, um, it's also a time for you to ask questions, so don't let me confuse you in any of this as we go through it. I just want to remind you of where we have been over the last couple of weeks. Am I, am I clicked? My clicker, there it goes. Um, remember, Amaziah was king of Judah, and he... Um, he had become king, and after he became king, the relationship between the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom was pretty good at first. Amaziah becomes king of the southern kingdom, and he decides, well, he's got to put the Edomites back in line, because they got, in the last 50 years or so, they got kind of out of whack, and they started to run off from Judah, and that's not good. And so Amaziah, i got to put them back under my thumb, and, and he builds up his army a little bit, so he feels like we can take the Edomites but just to be sure, let's get 100,000 men from the north and let's bring them down and just to ensure that our army's big enough. And just as he does that, God brings in a prophet to him and says, and it's an unnamed prophet, we don't know who it was. The prophet comes in and says, no, send those 100,000 men back home. We don't need them because they're idolaters and God's going to punish you if, you if you bring them into war. And so he says, okay. So he sends them back home, which is bad news in this, obviously at this time period, because to be a soldier meant you get lots of plunder. So you go into the town, you, you uh, defeat the army, and you take all the goods. And so a soldier could actually become rich and provide very well for his family just by the spoils of war. So when he sends 100,000 men home, they are mad. And so they walk home, and on their way, they start destroying Judean towns on the way. They start burning them down, killing women and children, all kinds of other things. Well, after Amaziah and the armies defeat the Edomites, they're mad about... you got to flip the thing on me because I don't know what's happening with my clicker here. Um, they're mad about what's happened with the 100,000 men and how they've destroyed the towns of Judah on their way back. 
And so they decide, well, we've beaten the Edomites. God gave them into our hands. Why couldn't we then turn on Israel and destroy them as well? But this is actually the beginning of a, kind of a little bit of a story here on how God is actually going to humble the southern kingdom. Do you remember what's happened to the southern kingdom over the last, well, several Wednesday nights that we've sort of looked at them? They got really tied into the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom started, uh, you know, worshiping idols and things like this. And the southern kingdom was like the king was the nephew of Ahab, and they were the nephew and connected in the family to these idolaters. And so they started to partake in a lot of the things the northern kingdom was doing. And so God decides, well, I'm going to humble the southern kingdom. And so the southern kingdom turns on the northern kingdom and says, hey, you destroyed our villages, and it's time we met on the battlefield, and let's settle this, you know, old world style, I guess. And the northern kingdom is like, look, you need to be satisfied with your little victory over the Edomites and just go on back home. And it, the text literally tells us that Amaziah didn't listen because really God covered his ears. It was God's way of judging the southern kingdom for being idolaters because when they defeated the Edomites, they took a lot of their idols back home and began to worship them. And God never looks kindly upon that, and so he's going to humble the southern kingdom. And so they go to battle, and they get whooped handily uh, by the northern kingdom. And after the battle, um, Amaziah is not only defeated, not only is the northern kingdom defeated, but Amaziah is captured by Jehoash and is, is brought back to Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem is the capital of the southern kingdom. Uh, Jehoash from the north brings him down to the south, to watch Jerusalem fall. I want you to see what I'm about to do to your city. Then takes him back into the north, into Samaria, the capital city of the northern kingdom, and holds him there captive for years. And the only reason that he's released and allowed to come back home is because Jehoash dies 15 years before Amaziah does. So Amaziah is allowed to come back home, but things don't get any easier. Because when he comes back home... His people hate him, and they run him off. They run him out into the wilderness, and then they kill him in Lachish. And that's how he dies. Now, we're going to go into the next two kings to be raised up, and you're going to start, I think, that's a lot of names, and a lot of confusing names we've been through, Amaziah, Jehoash, a lot of the same names, Joash and Joash, you know, a lot of those same ones. Um, as we get further in, the next few weeks, you're going to start recognizing, I think, some more names. All right? The southern kings are going to start to sound familiar to you. You're going to get Hezekiah pretty soon. You get, you know, a lot of those. Josiah is coming on the horizon in a couple hundred years, you know, whatever. Um, but I think some things are going to look, start to look familiar to you. I want you to re remember just a few important dates. Some dates that are just, if you, if you forget every date we ever talk about, some dates that are just really crucial for you to just pin in your brain forever when you're thinking about the Old Testament, all right? 931, Solomon dies, and that begins the fracture of the north and south, southern kingdom. Remember, the, kings, the kingdoms are united under David. It's just Israel. That's all it is, just, just Israel. And David's king over all of them, all 12 tribes. And then 
Solomon comes onto the throne, builds a temple, but then he starts to worship idols and marries a lot of foreign women and all this kind of stuff. And God says, hey, that's not cool. You're going to be judged. And I'm going to wait until Solomon dies because of my love for David. So Solomon dies in 931, and Jeroboam, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Rehoboam takes the throne uh, after Solomon, Solomon's son, and that begins the fracture. He says, hey, you think Solomon was hard? I'm going to be twice as hard. And that begins the fracture of the north and south, and eventually they just become two different kingdoms. Capital of the north is Samaria, capital of the south is Jerusalem. Then 722, which we're not to yet, we're about 760 tonight, somewhere around there, but 722, Assyria is going to walk in and capture the northern kingdom and haul them off into captivity. Huge, pivotal moment, because tons of prophets are going to be coming onto the scene preaching to the north, all right, as we get closer to 722. Then we get to 586, and that's when Babylon finally is able to bring down Jerusalem and haul off the southern kingdom into captivity. And as we get closer to that date, you're going to see a lot more prophets start to kick up for the southern kingdom as well. So those are three really important dates. And if you can remember that, you can start to put the prophets in their place and figure out where they are, figure out who they're prophesying to, and why that's really important for what's about to happen. Um, Okay, now, we've got the death of both Joash and Amaziah, and when they both die, there are some really complicated chronology. It messes with our timeline, all right? Because the way the Bible tells us that this happens is a little bit confusing, and if you're not paying attention, well, you get all kinds of twisted. So Jehoash dies in 782, all right? We know that. Uh, We're pretty certain on that. Um, and uh, Jeroboam, his son, Jeroboam II, begins to reign, and he dies in 753, all right? And so that's a, a span of 29 years. But the author of Kings and Chronicles actually tells us that he reigned for 41 years. So that's a problem, right? We have some missing years there, 12 years. All right, so we've got to figure ha- how that happened. How is it that Jeroboam can really reign for what's obviously, uh, it seems, 29 years, but the Bible tells us it, he reigned for 41 years? Look at 2 Kings 14, 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of, of uh, Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, began to reign king of, uh, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria, and he reigned for 40 one years. Now, the, the reason we start to know what some of these dates are is because we're getting closer and closer to the exile of the northern kingdom, right? The north is about to be hauled off into Assyria, and there is no doubt that that's 722. So, once you know that date, then you start to work backwards, and you've only got so many years you can squeeze in there, right? So, what, what happens? How, how are we able to make sense of some of these reigns? And I think it, it, it's, it's actually not super difficult um, the best solution to the problem is this: um, is to assume that there was a 12-year co-regency between Jeroboam and Je- Jehoash, so that 41 years actually commenced in 793. So what we have in both the north, and we're going to see it in the south too in just a second, is that the sun took 
the throne with his father just a short while into the tenure. Now, why would they do this? Why would you think that you would do this? If you were the king and you had a son who you would presume was going to take over, you know, when you died, why would you bring him on quicker than your death? What, what, thoughts? Why would you do that? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good one, right? Security, all right? That's your, tra- training. And why would training be important? Right? <laughs> he's, he's stupid. <laughs> you know, you gotta, <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta train up a child, right, in the ways that he should go. <laughs> so that when he says he won't depart. Yeah, but you have to remember, too, that m- militaries are a threat, right? So any country, any country is a threat. They're, allies are not really, uh, they don't really become a thing until many years later, all right? Till kind of the more modern era when we, I don't know, we kind of pretend like we're too sophisticated to go to war, you know, now. Um, we start to develop allies and things like that and, and, and trade partners and things. Certainly there was some of that, but that's not the norm in this day and age. The norm is you either conquer or you are conquered. Pretty, it's, it's black or white, a binary choice, right? You're either, you either conquer or you're conquered. And so, if you think about that for just a second, if you're the king and you're leading your military off into battle, who's watching the home front? Right? So you, you, your son kind of takes some authority, as we might say prince, and he has some authority of the crown prince, and he's able to enact some of that authority, and then when you die, there's a natural transition. The other part of this, too, is when you die, there's no guarantee your son's going to take the throne. First of all, child mortality rates like crazy, right? I mean, your kid could die easily of a disease or whatever. Okay, so that's one part of it. The other is, if he's too young or if he's inexperienced, who's to say your family's going to stay on the throne? What if the military just decides we're going to take over? right? could easily happen. And so you establish some continuity, right? So you, you bring on the sun a little bit. So it's, it, the difficulty is when the biblical writers refer to it, they go back to the beginning of the co-regency rather than just the year that he became ex- exclusively king. And so it throws us off and it makes us a little bit confused because the co-regency isn't really spelled out in scripture. Now, so the 12-year overlaps one thing, but when we get to the southern kingdom, um, we have the lap between Amaziah and his son Uzziah, or you'll see in 2 Kings his name is Azariah, um, is 25 years. And so Amaziah dies in 767, and we know that Uzziah is going to die in 740. Now, do you know Uzziah? Do you know the name Uzziah? Where do you know the name Uzziah? Isaiah 6.1, right? Uh, when... In, uh, when uh, um, in the year Uzziah, King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And what we're going to see, and, and spoiler alert, okay, is when we, when we start talking a little bit about Isaiah, because Isaiah is going to be, um, Isaiah goes for like 200 years, all right? The, the book of Isaiah does, but it, it goes for a long time. And when we start getting to Isaiah, what we're going to see is that statement in Isaiah 6.1, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up is actually a really important statement. Do you know why? Uzziah was good. 
Now, he turned a little bit at the end, but the vast majority of his reign was really good. Do you know why that's important? Where is the southern kingdom right now? They're in the middle of God's humility that he's bringing to them. They're defeated in war. They're the whipping boy. Jerusalem fell to their brother, the northern kingdom. They were hauled, a lot of them were hauled off into prison. Their king was captive. They just ran him off into the woods and killed him, right? So the southern kingdom is in a lot of turmoil, and Uzziah is going to come in, and he's actually going to lead some change that brings their hearts back to the Lord, which is great. So then Isaiah 6-1 comes in, and the king, Uzziah, is dead. That's not good. For the same reason we were talking about the co-regency of the son, that's not good. Your king was good, and now he's dead. Hey, this isn't, we don't vote. All right? We're not voting for a new president. We get who we get. If he's wicked, well, we're in trouble. And we're going to be led right back to where we were. If he's good, great. But how many kings are good? Well, if you do a survey of the Old Testament, not too many of them. So then the fact that King Uzziah died is bad. What does Isaiah say after that? I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. What is Isaiah saying in Isaiah 6? You think there's turmoil because your king is dead. I'm telling you, king is on a throne. We serve the Lord, not a man. Right? So it's, it's important, it's big. But it, the point is, you're getting close to, we're, we're, we're getting into that. Okay, so 25 there. So what that means is then, same co-regent, we're, we're dealing with a co-regency there. In fact, uh, Uzziah and, um, and, well, his name just escaped me, Jeroboam II, both take the throne or are co-reigning with their dads at about the same time. They're contemporaries, cl- close to the same time. Uh, Uzziah's going to outlive him, I think, just a little bit, but... Um, so, uh, the point is, Uzziah was 16 years old when he begins to co-reign with his dad. 16. That means that his dad was about 14 when he had him. Now, that seems crazy. Not unheard of back then, okay? And certainly, certainly not the norm, but not, you know, overly crazy. That definitely his first kid. So, we're dealing with some, some young people here, right? As, as they grow up, which Isaiah is also going to warn us about when he says, I'll make infants to rule over you, right? There's young people that are going to come to throne. Okay, so um, Uzziah is 16. Now, we get to Jeroboam 2, who's in the north. Remember, uh, Jeroboam 2 is in the northern kingdom. He's, he's over the north. Do you remember who Jeroboam was? Jeroboam 1 was? Remember who he was? He's what? First northern king. He wasn't a son. He was a, he was a servant in the house of the southern king, Rehoboam. It's really confusing because you got Rehoboam and Jeroboam. All right? So Jeroboam is in the south. He's a servant. He, the Lord actually separates him apart and says, you know, I'm going to separate the kingdoms as judgment. So do you remember what is Jeroboam one? Is he good or bad? Yeah. In fact, every bad king in the north, it says, if he's bad, it says, which is almost all of them, it says, he followed in the sins of his father, Jeroboam, son of Nebat. 
right? That's how bad he was, was that everybody who's bad is compared to, to him. He's that bad, all right? So when you're named Jeroboam, you tend to be kind of follow after the, yeah. So uh, he's also bad. But it's, it, when we get to the Jer- reign of Jeroboam too, it's, it's sort of sparse. We don't, we don't have tons of information on Jeroboam. In fact, the text of Scripture is very little uh, when it comes to Jeroboam. Uh, look at this in, in 23 and 24. Uh, he did, uh, look at 24, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sons of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. There it is. Uh, when he made Israel to sin. He restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai. You, you know who that is? Who is Je- Jonah, the son of Amittai? You know him? Name sent, ring a bell? Big fish? Same Jonah, all right? That's going to come impor- be important next week when we actually deal with, did a guy really get swallowed by a fish? I won't spoil it for you, but um, he did. Um, all right, so um, there's lots of prophets that rise up during this time. So we, the, the information that we have about Jeroboam too mostly comes from the prophets that we have about that time, both Amos and Jonah and then we get a little bit uh, in from Isaiah just kind of telling us what the time was like. But we obviously know he's wicked, and um, so there's going to be a lot of uh, judgment coming for sure. So Jeroboam, what we do know about him and what the text does tell us is that he was able to go in and bring South Aram and the Transjordan back under Israelite control. And I know those two terms are like crazy. Where is uh, South Aram and the Transjordan? I'm going to put up a map in just a minute, so just... Hold tight on that. But the point is, he was able to go into Damascus, do battle with Damascus, conquer them, bring South Aram, and, which is part of Damascus, and then, and then the Transjordan back under Israelite control. Why is that a big deal? Well, because this is supposed to be the kingdom of God, isn't it? That's at least what we were told when David took the throne, that this was the kingdom of God. Well, then, if the kingdom of God is to expand... What happens when the kingdom of God begins to contract and we start losing territory? God is no longer with us. It's God's judgment. So the fact that Jeroboam, too, is able to expand. Now he's wicked. He follows in the, the sins of his, of his father or his great-great-grandfather. But he, the Lord still gives the territory back into his control. And so the feeling in the north is, well, hey, God is with us. Because look, the head coach is winning the football games. God is with us, right? It's same thing. It's the same, same principle at work. All right, so look at uh, 25 to 29. He restored the border of Israel from Laboth Hamath to the Sea of Arba, according to the word of the Lord, preached through Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, And there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would not blot out the name of of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did, how he fought and how he restored Damascus and Hamath uh, to Judah and Israel. Are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? 
Jeroboam slept with his father, the king of Israel, and Zechariah's son reigned in his place. Okay, so what we do know is that he was able to do this, and all of this came to pass. Why? It wasn't because he was righteous. In fact, the Lord saw the wickedness, the author tells us, and in spite of the wickedness, he was still gracious because he swore that he wouldn't blot him out. Right now, they're in such a dire position that if the Lord squashed them any further, they would collapse, in other words. And so he promised not to squash them, and so he gave them successes. Remember in Romans when Paul tells us in Romans 3, right after the, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, he tells us he passed over former sins, that God passed over former sins. We read that in Romans, and you know, why in the world that doesn't sound like God? I mean, we look at the cross, and, and we see the, the cross, Jesus dying on the cross, and we don't, we don't think God's passing over former sins, right? He's dealing with them there on the cross, if nothing else. That doesn't sound like God. This, this is an example of that, where he is seeing the sins and the unrighteousness, and he's choosing, rather, to forbear with them, to be patient with them, and um, give them success in spite of the fact. But Jonah the prophet, he proclaims that uh, Israel's deliverance is a mercy that the Lord is giving. He's going to continue to give them deliverance because of mercy. Now, we get two prophets coming on the scene right now. Jonah is one. We're going to deal with him next week, because I want to spend, I'm going to try to do all, all next week on, on Jonah. Um, because I do think with Jonah in particular, and I find this every time I teach the book of Jonah, without a doubt, especially the younger the crowd is, and I try to explain this to people, and a lot of people that are in an older crowd don't, don't totally get it, that... <laughs> no, no, no. What I mean is, when, when I think the, for the large part, with an older crowd, when I say, here's the book of Jonah, here's a man swallowed by a big fish, spit up on dry land, goes and preaches repentance to the town of Nineveh. Most of the older people in the crowd go, yeah, tell us what it means. Why does it matter? Tell us how it hits me in the 21st century. But when, you, when I teach like a crowd of young people, for the most part, the question is, did that really happen? So you see, they're starting from two different places, right? One starting from the assumption this is true, now tell me what it means. The second is saying, I don't care what it means first. I want to know if it's true. How can I actually believe a big fish swallowed a man? Right? And what, what I think is, is, is great is, and, and one of the things that God kind of, I felt like in the scriptures just sort of threw us a bone here, Right? Because if we just had the story of Jonah, that would probably become a really big conversation, and, and, it, and it is, but a bigger conversation. But, but the Lord sort of threw us a bone in that, and he doesn't always do this, Jonah is referenced in 2 Kings, right? As just a prophet in the, in the south, which, which is helpful, all right? Because what does that do? That actually says, all right, apart from being swallowed by a big fish, here we have just a regular guy who's a prophet walking up to a king and, and saying this, and he's just, he's just referenced. So that's good. He threw us another bone in the New Testament when Jesus references Jonah and his preaching, and he tells the Pharisees, the men of Nineveh are going to rise up in judgment over you 
because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and you don't. So that's also helpful because then we've got Jesus who actually affirms the story of Jonah, okay, at least in part. So then we have to deal with, did Jesus rise from the dead? Because that, that's all that matters, right? At that point, once Jesus rises from the dead, well, then you go back, and what is Jonah getting swallowed by a fish? Doesn't really, I mean, that's beans compared to a guy dying and getting you know, resurrected, obviously. So, so there's some help there, but then there's also some archaeological stuff in Nineveh that is interesting with the gods that they worship and stuff like that that I think is helpful and, um, you know, is, is really good. So, but before we get to them... We want to cover the other prophet, who is also about this time, Amos. You know Amos? Do you remember the book of Amos? You know anything about the book of Amos? If I asked you to give me an outline of the book of Amos right now, could you give me an outline of the book of Amos? Okay. <laughs> All right. You give me some Bible facts. Okay, so he, he was a fig farmer and a shepherd. He what? Okay, lived in Tekoa, Georgia. Is a Bulldogs fan? I'm assuming. Okay. He, was, he lived in the south and prophesied in the north, right? Okay, lived in the south, prophesied in the north. Okay, that's good. He was also a shepherd and a fig farmer, which is, which is great. Two of the things I love most, meat and, and fruit, you know, good. Uh, so he was, he was a, a shepherd and a fig farmer. He was in the southern kingdom. He's called to prophesy. He tells us he was, he was not a prophet nor a son of a prophet, meaning... I was just out in the middle of nowhere tending my sheep and, and pruning my fig trees, and the Lord was like, guess where you're going? You're going to the north, and you're going to prophesy to the king, which would, I think, probably buckle my knees. A lot of us probably would. Um, he says, the words of Amos, this is really helpful, because Amos is situated in a place and time. Oh, that's another reason Jonah is really important, too, is because that little passage gives us the time where Jonah is which is really helpful. We'll talk about him next week. Again, next week. Okay, Amos, he says, uh, he was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning uh, Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now, we don't know when the earthquake was. That would be really nice if we knew that, but we don't know that. All we know is that what is in that sweet spot of overlap between the northern and southern kings that we're talking about, Jeroboam, and Uzziah, king of Judah. And so that gives us a time right in like the 760s, at between 767 and 753. So right in that little sweet spot of a window is where, uh, is where he's prophesying. So that, that gives us like a, a pinpoint almost date for Amos, which is really awesome uh, because then we can see how neatly the book of Amos actually fits into all the context of what we've all been talking about for the last few weeks. Now, before pronouncing judgment on the northern kingdom uh, for its rampant idolatry, uh, Amos prophesies against all of Israel's neighbors. Remember, the whole world's in turmoil right now, and everyone's worshiping other gods, including Israel and Judah. So Amos is called to preach to the northern kingdom, but he preaches, I mean, we're looking at how many years is that? 14 years that he's preaching and prophesying in the northern kingdom? So he's got a lot of sermons in 14 years, all right? And probably unlike me, he's been in more than just one book for the, the most, I'm sure. But uh, no, he, he, so he's 
he's preached to, to a lot of sermons, right? And those sermons have been preached to a lot of other nations, not just Israel. But the interesting thing about the way Amos opens up is he starts with everybody else. He starts with all the neighbors. He starts with, Siri's going crazy, I mean, he starts with all the neighbors around Israel. And he starts with Damascus. And get this, he preaches against Damascus and against Gilead uh, because they, they, they went into Gilead and they ravaged Gilead. Do you remember what Damascus was told to do? Remember Hazael? This is just a few weeks ago, all right? Hazael was appointed by God to be king over Damascus and to go in and judge the nation of Israel. And now, Amos is saying, now you're being punished for judging Israel. Isn't that weird? Seems weird, right? They went too far. He's actually going to judge Babylon and Assyria for the same thing. The judges that he raises up to go into the nation of Israel and judge that nation, his own children, he then turns around and punishes because they went too far. So this is exactly what he does to Damascus. He punishes them because they go too far. And not only does he punish them, he's actually going to wipe them off the map with Assyria. Assyria is going to come in and just decimate Damascus until they are nothing, and they don't ever really become nothing again. All because they went too far. So he starts with Damascus, and then he goes and pronounces judgment on the Philistines. Wait, sorry. Because of what they did to Gilead. Then he goes and, and pronounces judgment on the Philistines. Then he goes to Tyre. Then he goes to Edom. Then he goes to Ammon. Then he goes to Moab then to Judah, and finally Israel. Do you see what he's doing? He starts the book, first couple of chapters, going to everybody else, and he's just sort of building this circle like a vulture, circles above the air, and then all of a sudden he dive bombs Judah and then comes right to Israel, and he spends the rest of the time on Israel. Okay, But this is where I think this gets interesting, and it sort of helps us understand, what did Israel do exactly? What is Israel accused of doing? This is what helps us understand what the reign of Jeroboam was actually like. He tells Israel, well, let me show you a picture first before I do that. So i got to point these cities out because they're hard to see from back there. Damascus is right up here. Damascus, Aram, Syria, it's all the same country. All right, Damascus is the capital city. Aram are the people, they're the Arameans, and Syria is the country. All right, but it's all called the same thing. Okay, so Damascus is up here. Philistia, all the Philistine cities are down here. You've heard of the Gaza Strip. It's Philistine country, okay? Philistines are down here. Tyre, Edom, Moab, Ammon. All right here. So he does all them first. Then he comes to Judah. Then he spends the rest of the time in the pink territory here in Israel. All right? So it's really easy. Oh, and by the way, Tekoa is right there. Jerusalem, Tekoa, just south of Jerusalem. Okay, that's where he's from. All right, so what did Israel do? What are they being accused of doing? Well, they, he chastised the treatment of the poor. They're taking the poor who can't afford a day in court, and they're selling them into slavery. Not only that, they're taking advantage of them sexually. 
That's a problem. Big problem. Um, so there's sexual morality. They're taking advantage of the poor. That's not to mention the fact that there's rampant idolatry. Listen to this. Thus says, this is Amos 2, 6 and 8. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment. Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. This is, this is what they do to the poor. The poor come in, they've got a case to be made. They've got a debt. And instead of allowing them to work, to you know, whatever, pay off their debt or forgiving their debt as they're supposed to, they sell them into slavery. And for the slaves that they sell into slavery, they get silver or even a pair of sandals. Um, those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Justice is a problem. It turns out, and the book of Amos bears this out explicitly, God pays very close attention to the court systems really close attention to the court systems. Because that's the only voice you've got sometimes. And for a poor person going into the court, that's all they've got. Only hope they have is that the judge sitting up there rules in their favor. And in this case, you've got poor people who are innocent and who are in debt, obviously, because they're poor. That's why they're poor. And instead of allowing them, forgiving them, it's actually written into the Jewish code in the year of Jubilee that you just forgive all the debts. And instead of doing that, they sell them into slavery. Use them even in some cases as sex slaves. So it's heinous what they're doing. And he's bringing judgment upon them. And so ultimately, this is going to come in 722 when the Assyrians are going to walk in. And he tells them this. Look at Amos 3.11. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you and your strongholds shall be plundered. And then 527, and I will send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. All right. So he's mad. All right. That's very clear. And so what Amos then goes on to say, here's the, here's the rub of all this. You've got these judges who are taking advantage of the poor, who are doing all kinds of abusing them in all kinds of ways. And yet, they show up in the temple and they worship God. And they observe all the high holy days, all the feasts and festivals. They make all the sacrifices. They say all the prayers. They sing all the songs. They do all the things that they're supposed to do. And it's a huge problem, right? So, he prophesies... They, they keep celebrating. There, there's a thing that the, the Jews are looking forward to called the Day of the Lord. What is the Day of the Lord? We've talked about it just briefly, but what is it? Do you remember? Anybody? It's a day of judgment. But it's a day of judgment where God is going to mount up an army and he's going to come in and he's going to squash all of his adversaries. 
And here are these people who are abusing the poor, and they're going to the temple, and they're celebrating God, and they're singing all the songs, and they're doing all the things. And they're looking forward to the day of the Lord. So God tells them through Amos, um, Woe to you, 5.18-27, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It's darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. <laughs> wow. <laughs> he's, so he's asking them, why are you looking forward to the day of the Lord? What, what, the irony here is that Israel, who's looking forward to the day of the Lord, where the Lord mounts up an army and comes and squashes his adversaries, are getting the report from Amos, you're the adversary. You're the one I'm going to squash. Why are you looking forward to it? It's like you're celebrating the day of the Lord as if you're running from a lion and, and you get met by a bear. Not a good scenario if, you, if it's ever happened to you. So what, what is the result going to be then? Israel's going to be squashed by the Lord as he comes to vanquish his enemies. Now, here's, the, here's where we get down to the real crux of the matter and what Amos is going to drive home. Unlike the Canaanite deities, see, the Canaanite deities don't really care. You can come to worship the Canaanite deity and you can be good with Baal or with a number of other Canaanite deities. And you can get rain and you can get, you know, sex and cult worship and all kinds of things like that. In Despite how you act towards other people outside. It doesn't really matter. The relationship you have with a Canaanite deity is irrelevant to the relationship you have with somebody else and, and vice versa. But unlike the Canaanite deities, God actually cares how you live. That your whole life is in worship to Him. Not just your time in the temple. And they're treating God like he's a Canaanite deity. And he's telling them through Amos, I'm not. That's not who I am. In fact, we get a very similar report uh, in Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Where Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What's the, uh, what's the point here? Isn't this pretty fearful? This is a fearful passage. When we read it, don't we kind of tremble a little bit at what he's saying here, Surely. The key is in a couple of things. He says, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Then he says at the very end, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Who are these people? Well, they're coming before him on judgment day. Having gone to church, prayed the prayers, read the book, 
sang the song, but the life didn't match. Monday to Saturday didn't really matter. Sunday was the only thing that mattered. Sad thing is, the people that are talking there are preachers. It's a little scary to me, okay, right? But he said, he's saying the same thing. Your life actually matters. And so he says, this is where I think, this is, you've heard this verse, I know you have, in Amos. It's a very famous verse. Covenant keeping in Yahweh's community was for justice and righteousness to never stop flowing. This is what he says in Amos 5, 24. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The question is, what is the community of God worshipers supposed to be like? It is supposed to be a place where justice rolls down like waters. In other words, you don't stop it. It just keeps going. And righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Right living like an ever-flowing stream. Now, that's great. Put a pin in that for just a second. Because who is that? Well, if we just stay in Amos, we end up going, yeah, Jews, come on. But Amos ends, so put a pin in that for just a second. Amos ends with the restoration of Israel following the day of the Lord. And he says that the tent of David will be raised up and God's people won't have to live in fear of God's judgment. There's a big question. When is that? Well, he says, in that day, listen to Amos 9, 11 to 15, in that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom. And all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip with wine and the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit and I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Now, that picture right there, a lot of people read that and they'll go, man, what a day of rejoicing that will be when we all get to heaven. That's not what he's talking about. In fact, the reason we know that's not what he's talking about is because this passage is quoted in Acts 15. Remember Acts 15? Acts 15 is the Council of Jerusalem. The Council of Jerusalem comes together, and they're trying to figure out what to do with those pesky Gentiles who don't want to become Jews in order to become Christians. And so, they say, well, fine. I guess they don't have to be. Because isn't it spoken by the prophet, in that day I will rise up 
the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. James, the Lord's brother, who's over the church in Jerusalem, cites this passage as being fulfilled in the book of Acts when the Gentiles come in. Why? Because it follows the day of the Lord. Well, what would that make the day of the Lord? Jesus' crucifixion. That's the day when God defined his people. When he drew a circle around them and said, these are mine. When he put his spirit within them and changed their hearts to give them a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone, that he might be their God and they might be his people. And slowly, over the last 2,000 years, he's been bringing them all in, one by one, Jew and Gentile, called under one name, Jesus, Christian. And what happens to that community when he does that? What's the purpose of that community? Justice flow like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. It's the church. What we are as a people. The fulfillment of what was told to Israel in Amos. It's a group of people called out by the Lord and set apart by Him who have His Spirit in their flesh and who enact His will upon the nations. Which means we preach the gospel. Who do we preach the gospel to? Who do we give the hope of salvation to? Everyone. Wait, just the rich? Rich and poor. In fact, James says, don't you dare see a person who comes in with a gold ring and say, sit here next to me and see the poor person come in and say, sit by my footstool. That's not what the kingdom of God is. That's not what the church is. That's not righteousness flow, flowing down like waters and right, and, and, or justice flowing like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's what the church is to be. But it requires a people live like it outside, too. Questions, comments? Acts 15. That's Acts 15. That's James, the brother of the Lord. Mm -hmm. Yep. They take the counsel and they're like, no, they've got to become Jews, right? And Paul says, wait a minute, guys. We preached. This is what happened. The Holy Spirit made his presence known in these people. You can't deny them. And James goes, well, obviously then, the book of Amos is coming to fruition right now. I mean, look, guys. This is, there's a lot of narratives going out there about how the end times flush out, right? I get it. And there's a whole lot of combustion that could be thrown into the mix right now. I get it. Um, but you have to understand that most of those prophecies in the Old Testament, the New Testament affirms has taken place in the crucifixion of Christ. There's still some that's not yet. It hasn't all come in yet. 
all right? It is coming in. It is being fulfilled at this very moment. The death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, accomplished this. And the New Testament authors are coming to terms with that, that we're in the last days. That's what they mean, we're in the last days. The last days isn't a future event that's coming. The last days is now, we're in them. John even says in Revelation, your brother and partner in the tribulation. We look forward to it like it's a day that's coming. And John's like, what are you talking about it's coming? Your brothers and sisters in Syria are like, what do you mean it's coming? How can it get worse than this? The prophets. They're hard to read, but put them in their context and they make sense. A lot of sense. So you read that and you're like, I know, I I realize people read it and they're like, the booth of David, it's fallen, it's going to be repaired, and it's going to be all this. They're being taken from their homeland. They're losing all their crops. They can't raise anything. And he says, it won't always be that way. One day, you'll be restored in the kingdom. And I won't punish you anymore. That's now, you're living in it. You're not living in the ultimate picture of it. It's going to get a lot better. But you're living in it. You're touching the hem of its garment. Other questions? We could spend forever on the end times. I know that. And we will. We're going there. We will. It's going to take a while. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our time to just study your word and read it and talk about it and think about all of its ramifications and complexities and nuances. It's difficult, I know, and it's, it's challenging and, and um, hard to wrap our minds around sometime. But I, I pray for us as a church body that, that we take to heart what we read in the Old Testament, that the intention that you have for your people is to be a kind of community where justice and mercy and righteousness flow and never cease. And you've given us your spirit to live in that way. So I pray that we would. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.